Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Well, good morning once again. Uh, those of you guys in uh, Kingdom Kids Classroom 3, you can head back to the door. Mr. Rob, Miss Emily are making their way back there uh, and have fun back there in Kingdom Kids for the rest of service. Um, for everybody else, good morning once again. Thanks for being here. Uh, really excited this week to be starting into a brand new sermon series uh, through the book of Jonah. And so we're going to be uh, spending uh, this week and the next four weeks uh, in the book of Jonah That'll kind of take us through the rest of the summer. And I know the book of Jonah is uh, a pretty famous story, right? Even those who didn't necessarily grow up in church or know their Bible real well are likely familiar with the story of Jonah. And it's a unique book for a number of reasons. So if I can just kind of set the stage for our series this morning, uh, here's some unique features that we see within the book of Jonah. Um, First of all, it's part of the 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament. But unlike most of the other books in this genre and in this part of the Bible, It's more of a prophetic narrative, right? It's following the story of Jonah as opposed to just focusing on the message that Jonah is to proclaim. If you read most of the other minor prophets, it's focused on the message, but here it seems to be focused more on the man himself. Uh, Jonah is a book that's full of irony and humor. Uh, There are creative ways that the narrator tells us the folly of Jonah that we will track as we go. And of course, most famously, it has a story about a great fish, right? Uh, Maybe you grew up hearing it was a whale. In the Hebrew, it does say fish. We can work through that next week when we get there. Uh, But most people know Jonah for this part of the story, right? That God appointed this great fish or whale to swallow up Jonah and keep him alive before he spits him back out on the land. Well, although the fish is the most famous part of the story, it's really not the main point. And in fact, we're going to see that the great fish is simply an instrument of God's mercy towards his prophet. And really, the book ends with a massive cliffhanger. Uh, The book doesn't really resolve itself. It ends in kind of a messy way, which is fitting for a very messy prophet. But it actually ends in a way that confronts us, the reader and the hearer of this message, with what we will do with all that we just read about Jonah. And then really at the center of this book lies that really messy runaway prophet named Jonah. Now Jonah is a really complex and complicated person. Now he usually gets a bad rap, right? And for often very good reasons, as we'll see in our text here today. He runs away from God, he acts in outright rebellion, and often is frustrated by what God is doing. But at other moments, he seems to get it, and he seems to act and say things that are righteous. And so anytime we think we have Jonah figured out, we just keep reading, and then it gets more confusing. Maybe the most confusing part is in the New Testament, Jesus talks about Jonah in a very positive way, which is surprising when we read the narrative of this runaway prophet. I think more than anything, though, we're going to find that we are a lot more like Jonah than we would like to think that we are a lot more like Jonah than we would like to think. There's something deep within Jonah that we are given a glimpse into in this beautifully short, drama-packed book. Uh, There's something deep within him that is also deep within us. Because, see, we are often 
complex and confusing, aren't we? If we mapped our story out on the page, it probably would look a lot like Jonah's. Moments where we are just an outright rebellion running away, and other moments we're like, oh, maybe he's figuring it out, right? Is that your life that feels like mine most of the time, right? We often can act stubbornly and think that we know what's best, and we're drawn to the same posture that Jonah takes up throughout the book. Here's the good news of Jonah. This book ultimately isn't really about a runaway prophet. It's not really about a big fish or a wicked city. The book is ultimately about God. And specifically, it's about the relentless, unstoppable, and mysterious mercy and compassion of God towards an undeserving people. You see, which means that the story of Jonah is our story. The story of Jonah is the story of the whole Bible contained in four chapters. And that's why we've entitled this series, The Mystery of Mercy. Right? That really is the story that we find ourselves in. I love how one author has summarized this book, uh, a guy named Anthony Carter. He says this. He says, Jonah is an old, old story, and yet it still offers to us insight, encouragement, and faith for living faithfully in our new world. In a world that is constantly at a pace unimaginable by Jonah and his contemporaries, we can still look to the simplicity of God's dealing with Jonah to see what faith looks like in our world today. Jonah was a rebel. We are rebels too. Jonah was running. We run too. Many of us run as fast as we can away from God, but God's grace is faster. God's grace was so great to Jonah, and to us, God's grace is greater still. That's a beautiful summary of the message of Jonah. And God's grace is greater to us still because like all of Scripture, Jonah is meant to point us to something true, something better, and something greater. And that's the grace that has been shown to us in Jesus, who ultimately is the greater Jonah. So here is the main idea for this morning, which really could serve as the main idea for our series as a whole. I think this is what Jonah is going to teach us. Though we are prone to run from God when we question his plan, God's grace runs faster. Though we are prone to run from God when we question his plan, God's grace runs faster. And so this morning we're going to see this in our first six verses of Jonah. We're going to look at the idea of running from God as Jonah does, and then secondly, look at the grace that runs faster. But before we jump in, let's take a moment to pause and pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, this book that you have given to us, this book that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, that speaks truth to us and tells us a story that we all need to hear, because we know that our story is contained within this story. So, Holy Spirit, may you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive from you today. Uh, may you help us to see the greater Jonah in the midst of this story of a messy runaway prophet. Help us to see uh, the truth of where we run away in the same ways that Jonah does. And also, in your kindness, would you draw us to repentance? Would you draw us back to yourself? And may you encourage and strengthen us as you do so. Help us to understand what is here today, and may we leave here encouraged and experiencing a greater worship of you because of the fact that you came on a rescue mission to seek and save us who were lost. Encourage us with that today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So let's begin by looking at this idea of running from God. And as we look at these first three verses, I want to look specifically at three things. First of all, the prophets. What do we know about Jonah? Secondly, the call. What is Jonah supposed to do? And then thirdly, his response. And it's in his response that I think we will spend a good amount of time tracing the story. So let's begin back in verse 1, if you'll read it again with me. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now the book of Jonah begins like most other books in the Old Testament prophets. The word of the Lord comes to a prophet. And the prophets were responsible to operate as the mouthpiece of God. They were to communicate God's word to God's people. Now Jonah actually shows up somewhere else in the Old Testament which helps us paint a picture of who this man really is. So in 2 Kings chapter 14, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the exact same person, is introduced as serving as a prophet for northern Israel underneath the reign of King Jeroboam II. Now, King Jeroboam II, like most of the kings of Israel, is described as a wicked king. But yet, God graciously gives him a prophetic word from Jonah, the prophets. And what we see there in 2 Kings 14 is that Jonah is communicating in support of an aggressive military strategy to try and expand the borders of the nation of Israel. And so it says that Jeroboam sought to expand basically the territory that they were over. They wanted to gain ground. They wanted to push back their enemies and strengthen Israel. So this paints Jonah as someone who's very nationalistic, right? He's very patriotic. Maybe that fits with our uh, 4th of July week here in our country right now, right? He's someone who is excited and wants to see Israel thrive and flourish, which is why this call that God gives to Jonah ought to jump out off the page at us. So look at the call in verse 2. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah and he says, arise, go to Nineveh that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So Jonah, patriotic, nationalistic, excited about what's going on in Israel, Jonah is called by God to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is a non-Israelite city. In fact, Nineveh is the capital of the mighty empire of Assyria, right? And Assyria would dominate the world scene for 150 years, Nineveh was this huge capital city that was filled with all sorts of impressive things for this time period. Now, there are a few instances in the Old Testament of a prophet being told to go to a foreign land and to proclaim the word of God, but nothing quite like this, right? Jonah's called to go to Israel's number one enemy and proclaim a gracious warning from God himself. And this ought to serve as a reminder that all nations... And all peoples will answer to God. All nations and all peoples are accountable to God, their creator, as we said in the creed, right? And so Jonah is called to go to the enemy of Israel, the superpower of the day, and warn them of God's judgment. So that's Jonah. That's the call. Now let's look at the response. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of of the Lord. Can we all acknowledge that Tarshish is a ridiculous word? Can we do that together? Let's all say it together. Ready? Tarshish. So many SHs right there. Yes. Okay. Um, So God calls Jonah. He says, arise, 
go to Nineveh. And so Jonah arose and fled the opposite direction. He arose and fled to Tarshish. So let's ask, because that's, that's quickly, right? That escalates really fast. Like God just shows up, he calls him to go here, and then Jonah gets up and goes the opposite way. So what's going on here? Well, I think we need to ask two questions. Why does Jonah run? And then secondly, how does he run? Why does he run and how does he run? Well, here's the why. We need to understand a little bit more about the relationship between Assyria and Israel to get to why Jonah is running. Right? God here says in the call that the wickedness of this city has come up before him. Now, historically speaking, that is an understatement. Okay, uh, One commentator compared Nineveh to Gotham from Batman, which maybe is a, a fitting comparison here. Right? The Assyrians were viewed as the bane of the ancient world. They were extremely violent, and they went to great lengths to record their exploits and their oppression to the point that we actually still can read about them today. So, and that's some 2,700 years after their reign, by the way. Now, there's very little I'm actually comfortable sharing in this environment from what the Ninevites would do and what the Assyrians would do, but here's a brief kind of feel of it. Uh, they were particularly gruesome. They were known for pillaging cities and then taking captives, oftentimes non-military captives, and then they would treat them with extreme brutality. They would dismember them, they would humiliate them, sometimes they would burn them alive, they would torture those that they defeated, and then they would show off their feats to others so that no one would be tempted to go against them. That is the most PG version I can give you of what we know about the Assyrians. Right? And then they would enslave anybody who was left and make them an exhibition for all to see in this life of misery. Right? And that is the place that Jonah is called to go to. And we have to keep in mind, too, that they're a massive threat to Israel. Okay? At this time, we have the divided kingdom. We have Judah in the south, and we have northern tribes of Israel in the north. And Assyria is the enemy of these northern tribes of Israel. They are the big ones to be worried about. And what history is going to tell us is that some 50 years after Jonah's prophetic ministry here, the Assyrians, they're going to conquer northern Israel. They're going to destroy their capital city, and it really doesn't exist the same after that. So when we say that Jonah is called to go to enemy territory, he is called to go to the enemy, the enemy that will destroy the northern tribes of Israel. So does Jonah fleeing make more sense now? Would we all flee with that same message? Right? Let's be honest. I mean, the stakes are awful high here. The first thing that could happen to Jonah, of course, is that he could simply be killed. And maybe not just killed, but tortured and killed, right? He goes and proclaims this message from a foreign land. How might they view that? As a threat, right? They might immediately kill him. Or let's say it actually works, right? He goes and he proclaims this message, this warning that they should repent, and the Assyrians actually listen. How do you think Jonah's fellow countrymen would feel about that, right? The very country who's about to overthrow them. Right now, if they go and they listen, Jonah is going to be viewed as a traitor. He's going to be viewed as the enemy of his own people. He probably will no longer be welcomed back in Israel. But despite those two very real realities, there's an issue that runs deeper. There's an issue within Jonah that runs deeper than those circumstantial things. I think we see it here in the text. What is Jonah running from? He's not running from Nineveh necessarily. He's not running from the call to go and proclaim repentance. 
Now, do you see where Jonah's issue ultimately lies? It lies with God himself. It says here that he flees from the presence of God. You see, Jonah's issue, above all the other issues, is ultimately theological. Right? Jonah, as you can imagine, does not want God to give the Assyrians the grace of a warning, the opportunity for repentance. He wants God to destroy them. And the rest of the book is going to show that to be true. He wants the Assyrians and the Ninevites to be punished for their extreme wickedness. He thinks that by taking this message of repentance and warning, that God would ultimately be unjust and it would call into question his character and nature. Right? He's in complete disagreement with the way God is dealing with the enemy. And again, if we were faced with this real-life, lifetime decision, I think that we probably would have these same issues. Right? This enemy that we're going to, that will potentially affect, kill you and your family and your people, I'm guessing that the questions would come up in your mind as well. Here's how Pastor Tim Keller describes Jonah's predicament. I think he captures it well. He says, Jonah wants a God of his own making, a God who simply smites the bad people, for instance, the wicked Ninevites, and blesses the good people, for instance, Jonah and his countrymen. When the real God, not Jonah's counterfeit, keeps showing up, Jonah is thrown into fury or despair. Jonah finds the real God to be an enigma because he cannot reconcile the mercy of God with his justice. How, Jonah asks, can God be merciful and forgiving to people who have done such violence and evil? How can God be both merciful and just? Do you feel that tension there? That is the tension of the book of Jonah. And it's not just a tension in a book. I'm guessing you felt that tension in your own life in some way too. How can God be so compassionate yet also just and righteous at the very same time? Right, well, I think Jonah will help us wrestle with the tension of God's mercy and his justice, his compassion with his righteousness. And so in the face of this tension, Jonah runs. That is why he runs away. But let's look at how he runs. Keep going there in verse 3. He rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. You see, Jonah went with haste. He goes with a quickness, not to follow God's call, but to run as far away as possible. And his disobedience is literally costly here. He pays a fare to get onto a ship. He's willing to invest money in his running away. And by all evidence, Tarshish, right, that ridiculous city name, is as far west as you can go from Nineveh. Nineveh's in the eastern part of the world. Tarshish is probably way over in Spain, as far west as they could imagine in this time frame. But rather than calculating the precise GPS coordinates of Tarshish and understanding the place he's running to, it's far less important what Tarsh where Tarshish is located and far more important what it represents, right? And it represents this city all the way on the western part of the world, life without God. It represents life without God, without God's call, 
without his infringing upon Jonah's life, without his practical involvement, Jonah wants to run and start something new. He's running in the opposite direction for this very purpose. Now, it says that he's fleeing from the presence of God. Jonah is a prophet of God, right? So Jonah, above all else, would know it's literally impossible to flee from the presence of God, right? It's sort of like Adam and Eve playing like hide-and-go-seek in the garden after they sin, right? It's the height of folly and foolishness, right? God, the creator, sustainer of all of this, and all of a sudden we see people are trying to run from him. So Jonah knows he can't actually run from God. So what's going on here? Well, the text says that Jonah is running from the presence of God. Another way to translate that is he's running from the face of God. See, what Jonah is doing is he's running from the functional, felt relationship that he had with God. Right? And by running, he's attempting to resign as prophet. Right? Think about all that would go into the life of a prophet. I mean, they're responsible. This is more than just a job. Right? They're responsible for hearing the voice of the Lord and then communicating the word of the Lord to God's people. And guess what? Oftentimes that message was not real pleasant. Oftentimes God was a little bit upset with what was going on and was giving a warning. It was a hard job. It came with lots of responsibility. And so Jonah, in the face of this tension, says, nope, I'm done with this. I know my whole life's been wrapped up in this, but I'm fleeing. I am running away to a place where the God of Israel, Yahweh, is not known. And I'm fleeing to a place where he hopes that the sound of God's word and the the noise of God's voice will simply be drowned out, where he can build a new identity. So let's pause here for a moment and think about some application. What does Jonah's reaction here tell us about the human heart? Because the uncomfortable truth I think we need to see is that there's, again, something in Jonah's response that also tugs at our own response to God. There's something in Jonah's running that taps deep into who we are as human beings. Because here's the thing, Jonah's rebellion, it's entirely natural. It's entirely natural. This is our default when we are confronted with the word of God in a way that challenges us in a way we don't want to be challenged. Right? This is our default posture when God calls us to do something we don't want to do, or when he calls us to refrain from something that we might want to do, right? And there's something for us to consider in these points of conflict between my desires, my vision of the good life, my idea of what I should be doing, and God's will and revealed word to us. There's something in that conflict for us to learn and to consider. I think this is precisely where Jesus wants us to press in. Well, again, I think Tim Keller's helpful. Here's how he sets up that dynamic. He simply asks the question, does God know what's best or do we? Does God know what is best or do we? See, the default mode of the unaided human heart is to always decide that we do. We doubt that God is good or that he is committed to our happiness. And therefore, if we can't see any good reason for something God says or does, we assume that there aren't any. That is the question before us. Do we know what's best, or does God know what's best? You see, at the bottom of our running is a heart that says, I know what's best for me. I know what's best for me. Right? God, I'm not seeing the goodness in this, so I'm going to choose my own path. 
I'm going to make sure that my happiness is met, that my needs are taken care of, that this life will go as I want it to go. And sin will always drive us to this tension that that Jonah is feeling here, right? Sin will cause us to run from the functional presence of God. And so the question I want to ask you is, what what are those things? What are those things that you feel that tug? What are those calls of God that you are resisting? Right? Maybe for you, it's the call to forgive that person that you just don't want to forgive that has hurt you. Maybe for you, it's the call to sexual integrity when it's not what you want or feel is best. Maybe for you, it's the call to give and to give generously of what God has given us and not to store up treasures here on earth. Maybe for you, it's the call not to view your children as a burden, but as a blessing, and to embrace the hard work of discipling and disciplining. That was just for me, so I don't know if anybody else is there. Maybe for you, it's the call not to preserve and to protect your comfort at all costs, but to pour yourself out, considering others more valuable than yourself. Maybe for you, it's the call to share the gospel with that person who you think is just not worthy of the gospel. Right? I can't answer the question, but what is it for you? Where is that point of conflict? Because whatever you're wanting to run from is likely the thing that Jesus wants to graciously get to work on. Whatever that point of conflict is, there's something there for you. Now, identifying the what is important. What we run from is important, but so too is how we run. Right? Just as Jonah invests money and we can see his trajectory here, we ought to consider how we run from God as well. Because I'm guessing it doesn't look like getting on a ship and sailing to the other part of the world. Okay, maybe it does. But most of us, though we do not physically arise and travel far away, how often do we flee by retreating to our phones and to social media and to distractions? Right? How often do we flee by running to gossip and slander? How often do we run away to substances like an overindulgence of food or alcohol or pornography or something like that? Right? How often do we run away to just consumerism, just acquiring more stuff to feel better? Right? You see, some of these can look very subtle at times, but we ought to see in our own running Jonah's running. We ought to see that when we run away from God's functional presence in those ways, that there's something going on within us that God wants to work with. Here's what I want us to wake up and see this morning. In all of these things, as we run away from the word of God, we are running away from God himself. We're seeking to do exactly what Jonah did, to create our own identity apart from relationship with God, and we're doing so that we might tune out, drown out the voice of God in whatever we're running to. And brothers and sisters, there is no life to be found there. There is no life to be found there. And it's exhausting. Running is exhausting, isn't it? It's meant to be. It's exhausting, and it ultimately is a dead end. And so where do you need to do business with the Lord this morning? What are you running from? How are you running? What would it look like to own up to those things? Because here's the good news. The good news of Jonah is that God's grace runs faster than our running away. And so let's look at that now in this second point, the grace that runs faster. Look at verse 4 once again. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. 
You see, one of the graces of God is not allowing us to run away. One of the biggest graces of God is chasing us down. Right? He could have easily let Jonah go. By the way, his business of resigning as prophet was pretty serious business. Like God probably could have taken his life at that point if he wanted to. But instead of just letting Jonah go, letting him run away, instead of punishing him in that moment, he runs after him. God is not done with Jonah. God's grace will go before him. And the way that the grace goes before him, much like the rest of this book, and much like what we experience in our lives, isn't quite what we'd expect. The way that God's grace is seen in Jonah is surprising to us. Right? And so this is an intense moment, if we can imagine ourselves there. Okay, they're on a boat, they're sailing, okay? they're trying to move away from Joppa, heading to Tarshish, and God hurls a great wind upon the sea. Hurls is the idea of throwing a spear, right? It's this intense, focused storm that's being hurled upon the ship, right? The storm is described as a mighty tempest. You can hear the ship creaking and cracking on the verge of just being battered to pieces. Now, if you were just focused on the circumstances of Jonah and these sailors, you wouldn't look at that and say, oh yeah, there's God's grace, right? There's his mercy, I know they're about to die, right? But the text is crystal clear. This storm is the sheer and utter mercy and grace of God. This storm is God chasing down his prophet. And by the way, he's got something for the sailors too. We'll see that next week more fully. But God is chasing down his prophet. He wants Jonah. He wants Jonah. And so he sends the mercy of a storm. Now, brothers and sisters, storms are inevitable in our world. Difficulties, trials, the creaking and cracking, the threatening to break up, that is normative for us in this broken world. But what we see here are two different kinds of storms. The first thing we see is that some storms in our lives are a direct consequence of our own sin. That's the story of Jonah, right? Jonah is in this storm because of his sin, because of his rebellion, because of his running away, because he questioned God's rule and reign. See, sin always has consequences because it's a disruption of how this world is supposed to be, and it's a disruption of how we are supposed to live in this world. And so sometimes when we look at the difficulties in our own life, we ought to ask, is this just my foolishness that has caused this? Right? Is God just allowing this to take place as a consequence of my sin? But listen, sometimes the most gracious thing that God can do is send us a storm that's a consequence of our sin. Sometimes the most gracious thing that he can do is to reveal to us the folly when we think we know what's best, that we actually have no idea what we're talking about. Right? Sometimes the most gracious thing God can do is send us a storm to wake us up from our deep sleep of the things of God so that he might get us back. Just as he wants Jonah, he wants us. Sometimes a storm accomplishes that. So Jonah's in the storm because of his sin, but there's other people involved. We have these mariners, right? We have these sailors, those pagan sailors who don't know Yahweh. They're aboard this ship, and they are caught up in this storm too, which tells us that sometimes, maybe even most of the time, storms in our lives are simply a result of living in a fallen, broken world that's not the way it's supposed to be. You can't always trace every storm from one point to the next of, I sinned, this happened, or someone sinned, this happened. The world is broken. Sin is ripped through the fabric of 
our universe, and sometimes things are just not the way they're supposed to be. But here's the good news. God has a purpose in those storms as well. God has a purpose in these kind of storms. We'll see more fully next week what happens with the sailors, but hardships of living life in this world oftentimes have a purifying effect on us. Right? They wake us up to reality. They develop in us a longevity and a perseverance in our faith like nothing else really can. Right? I'm sure you've experienced this in your own life that it's often the hardest times that are most formative, aren't they? It's often the moments of hardship and pain and suffering and just the sense of, man, something's just not right here that causes us to cling more closely. Right, to press in more deeply and that form us more into Christ-likeness. And so I think the, the, the admiration here is don't waste the storms of your life. Don't waste the storms of your life. There is mercy deep inside of these storms because God is there. Even when we can't see a good reason for them, God has a purpose in them. Now let's look at the actions of those caught up in this storm. Verse 5. It says, then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled, there's that same word, hurled, hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. The irony of this section is really rich. Right? What we see unfold here is these pagan sailors, these mariners who don't know God, Right, the God of Israel, they are more spiritually in tune than the prophet of God is. They get it way more than Jonah does. Right? We see this in numerous ways. The first thing they do is they know all that they can. They call out to their gods. They sense this is a, this is a different kind of storm. Like something's going on here. I mean, presumably they do this as a profession. They realize no, no, there's some extra divine activity happening in this storm. So they cry out to their gods. Right? They probably came from different backgrounds, different religious beliefs, most of the known world at this time would have gods over different parts of creation. So they're probably crying out to the storm god, the god of the seas, whoever they think that is, and begging and praying and pleading and asking for help. So they're praying, but then secondly, they take action. Right? They are willing to, at great cost to themselves, throw things off the boat to try to save human life. Right? Just like the Lord hurled the storm with great intensity, they hurl off their cargo with great intensity. Right, Jonah, the prophet, pays a fare to get onto this boat to run away from God. These sailors are willing to bear the burden of the cost of sacrificing their cargo in order to save human life. So while these sailors who don't know God are praying, while they're acting, while they're doing all that they can in desperation mode, Jonah, Jonah is sleeping. Jonah is fast asleep. This is not like the quick power nap maybe you're looking forward to later today, right? No, Jonah is in like a comatose state. Like he's like after Thanksgiving meal kind of nap state, right? He is knocked out cold. He is in a deep sleep, which by the way is completely consistent with his rebellion. It's the logical next step. I'm not sure if you picked up on it in the text, but the narrator keeps describing Jonah's running as downward, Right, so Jonah goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship, and then the storm comes, and he goes down further into the inner part of the ship, and then now he is in a deep sleep. Right, sin and running away from God always has a downward orientation to it. 
And Jonah doesn't know it yet, but he's got a little bit further down to go, as we'll see in the text. The greatest irony of this section actually comes in the next verse. Look at the captain, verse 6. The captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. See, the irony is that Jonah is running so that he does not have to speak to the Gentiles and to the pagans about God. And then he ends up in the exact situation he's running from on this boat because of God's sovereignty. In fact, the captain of the ship uses the exact same language that God did. Did you catch that? God says, arise, go to Nineveh, and call out against it. The captain comes down, wapes him out of his slumber, and says, arise, call out to your God. See, the irony here is that the pagan sailors are communicating the word of God to the prophet of God. Jonah is totally turned off to the things of God. He is indifferent and silent in the face of this request. It's not even until next week when they cast lots to realize Jonah's the problem. It's literally the ball is on the tee for him to tell them, hey, this is on me, right? Let me tell you about Yahweh. Let me tell you about the God of Israel. He doesn't want any part of it. He is indifferent in silence, in, in silence in the face of the suffering of his fellow humanity, right? And Jonah's indifference is meant to be an indictment on the status of his heart. You see, God's people, above everyone else, should have care and concern for all human beings, right? Because we know that every single human being, regardless of age, regardless of capabilities, regardless of ethnicity, of religious belief, of cognitive abilities, has worth, value, and dignity. Every single human being has this inherent to them being a human being because they are created in the image of God, the image of the God which Jonah was a prophet of. But yet, Jonah here is in the same boat with all these other humans, but yet is indifferent. He doesn't care. He's not spiritually tuned in to what is really true in this moment. And so that ought to cause us to pause for a moment, right? Christians ought to be on the front lines when the image of God is being devalued or attacked, right? We do this when it's happening in our homes, right? We do this when it's happening in our neighborhoods. We do this when it's happening in our city. We do this when it's happening here in our country, and we do it when it's happening around the world, right? God is the God of all nations here. It's one of the messages of Jonah, And so when there are atrocities happening against the image of God, Christians ought to be speaking against that. They ought to be there on the front lines doing something about it. It is our responsibility to do so. But yet here for Jonah, we see the terrible consequences of what happens when we run from God. When we run from God, whether we've done that our whole lives, whether we're just doing it functionally, it will naturally end up here. It will naturally end up with a disdain for the people around us a lack of concern, nothing that's motivated by love, just a sort of indifference, a shrug of the soldiers, of the shoulders. We will resort to selfishness, to tribalism, to a concern for us instead of quote-unquote them, right? And so I'm not sure about you, but it feels like Jonah might have a word for the church in 2019. There's something here for us to consider. And so church here at the King's Church, we ought to consider both individually and corporately, are we indifferent to the needs of image bearers of God that we are aware of? 
right? Where are we taking up this very same posture that Jonah does right here? Now, we're leaving off here this week right in the midst of the storm. That's somewhat intentional. I kind of want us to sit in this this week, right? There's some things here for us to think about. But before we walk away, we have a greater motivation to understand what's happening here than even the original readers of this did. Right? We have a greater motivation to actually turn away from the path of Jonah and to run back to the call of God. Because for us here in the church, the good news is this. We know that a better Jonah has come. Right? We know that the greater Jonah has already been here. Right? You see, Jonah, let's think about Jonah for a minute. He's called to leave the comforts of his life and his vocation and his privileges as a prophet of God living in Israel to go to an undeserving people with the message of God, even though those people were his enemy. Well, let's never forget the greater Jonah, right? Jesus left a far greater comfort. He left the riches, the glory, and the beauty of heaven in order to go to a people that hated him. He came to an enemy that, by the way, was sure to end in a death. But, here's the good news, where Jonah ran away, Jesus ran towards us, right? Where Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord and his calling, Jesus resolutely sets his face towards the cross. Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him. So though we participated and though we still participate in the same rebellion, the same running that Jonah exhibits here, God's grace in Jesus Christ runs faster. He offers us grace upon grace, as the Apostle John says. And brothers and sisters, it's only when we grasp this do we begin to submit all of our lives to him. It's only when we become so wrapped up in the greater Jonah who did that for our sake that we will submit everything to him. You see, Jonah is inviting us to see and to savor and to worship Jesus. And so wherever it is that you are running this morning, Whether you feel like you've been running your whole life, Jesus has run before you. His mercy is available, and so let's turn to him together. Let's pray.